Attention crew, this is your captain speaking. This is a supplemental edition of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. I'd like to beg your forgiveness, I am overcoming a nasty case of the Tellarian Plague. But I'll be back to full strength soon and at my post. On this episode, we have a special treat. I had a talk with Christine M. Smith author of DeForest Kelly, Up Close and Personal, A Harvest of Memories from the Fan Who Knew Him Best, which is a memoir of sorts and also a love letter, really, to DeForest Kelly, the star of Star Trek, or one of the stars of Star Trek, played, of course, Dr. Bones McCoy, and she shares her experiences and her correspondences with him. So stick around for that. But first, a news report. And it's good news and bad news. Good news is like, uh, sir, the Romulans have stopped firing. Uh, Bad news is they are demanding our unconditional surrender. Uh, The good news, well, actually, we'll go bad news first. The bad news here in this case is that Star Trek Discovery has been delayed again. It's been delayed a couple times, as we reported previously. Uh, It was recently announced to be coming out in May. That was the target for the premiere. The show will now miss that target. CBS released a statement saying essentially that production is beginning and that they aren't too worried. They want to stay flexible on a launch date. And they also reiterate the fact that since the show is on a streaming network, that is CBS All Access, they are not tied to the normal strictures that a television production has to face. And I'd agree that that is probably a good thing, but can we just have this thing already let's just let's just get it out there let's just let's just do it i just want to see it let's just, come on let's just do it i it's all bad news or at least it's all like kind of questionable news coming out of the camp there so let's just have the good stuff and let's see this show already the good news though good news everyone is that james frayne has been cast as Sarek, spock's father now james frayne is a british actor um you've probably seen him in a ton of british stuff like bbc stuff I think that on the American side, he's um, 24 is coming to mind. He was like on 24 one season or two. Anyway, I'm downplaying it. He's actually a really great actor. And I can totally see him in some ears. Um, He's no Mark Leonard. Uh, No one is a Mark Leonard. But I think that he should bring some gravitas and some real good acting to this. And it's exciting to hear that Sarek will be part of the show. We know that Klingons will be there. And we know that this takes place as they say, approximately 10 years before the start of the original series, but nobody really knows anything else other than that, and it seems like maybe they're playing with some stuff and maybe changing some stuff. And so seeing a familiar face and getting, you know, really just getting some more Sarek stories. Think of it, we only have, what, like three Sarek stories? Not counting uh, Star Trek Three, so maybe four. So, yeah, I think this is, uh, this is great, and I think they're handing it off to a good actor, and fingers always crossed, but a li- crossed a little less um, tightly, Uh, In in this case, I think this is good news. And we go from sort of bad news to really bad news. I know this is the wrong show, but it's been announced recently uh, today that Richard Hatch has died at the age of 71. Richard Hatch, of course, played Apollo on the original Battlestar Galactica, and he played Tom Zarek in the 2000 remake of the series. He was a he was he was a good actor. He was um, a guy who was always a tireless um, proponent of the original show, and also uh, getting on the new show, uh, did some really great work there. He offered acting courses and workshops to people. He always attended conventions, and it just, you know, by all accounts, a really nice guy, and just iconic, and just great in that role of Apollo. So even though this isn't the right show, he will be missed, and I think I can say, so say we all. That's the end of the news for now. 
Let's move on now to our interview with Christine M. Smith. As I mentioned before, her book, Divorce Kelly, Up Close and Personal, A Harvest of Memories, is a recounting of her friendship and correspondence with actor DeForest Kelly, a guy who too often, I think, plays third fiddle? How many fiddles are there in the orchestra? But people see him less than they see Kirk and Spock, even though he is part of that holy trinity, and he is part of what made Star Trek so great. And a lot of that comes out, his value to the show, and also his value as a person, in her book, and in our interview. And here it is. He's known to millions of Star Trek fans as the irascible Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy of the USS Enterprise, but my guest today also knew him as a kind and generous benefactor and friend. I'm joined on this episode by Christine M. Smith, an author, editor, and copywriter who has written seven books, the most recent of which is DeForest Kelly, Up Close and Personal, A Harvest of Memories from the Fan Who Knew Him Best, in which she details her longtime friendship with the actor and Star Trek star. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So glad to have you here. Uh, First of all, before we even talk about DeForest, let's talk about your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? It's very funny. My my dad and my cousin, Tim, actually started out as the Star Trek fans. (laughs) And I was kind of like hanging around in the background. They told me if I didn't shut up and be quiet, and I mean not utter a single word while Star Trek was on, you know, I'd be drawn and quartered. So (laughs) Right. So I just hung around in the background, and as I watched them watch it, I just got really into it in the first season when it was really on TV. I know yeah. this carbon dates me, but that's well. how it went. <laughs> Can you talk about the first time that you met DeForest? Yes. The first time I met D, he was going to be in a parade in Wenatchee, Washington. And so I drove over there figuring I would just, you know, watch him go by. You don't expect to meet anybody at a parade. Right. But as luck would have it, where I parked the car was very, very close to the hotel where D and Carolyn were staying. Mm-hmm. The Kellys were staying, sure. and I saw the limousine that would be carrying him and had the sign on the thing that said Mr. and Mrs. DeForest Kelly Star Trek, and I thought, you know, if I loiter shamelessly, maybe I can just um, actually meet him instead of just watch him go by. Right. So I did that, and they came out and got in the car eventually, and I just hung back a little bit because I was a little nervous. I didn't know if he was going to disappoint me or if he was going to be wonderful, you know? Yeah, Right. Especially since I've seen him in Westerns, too. And if you've ever seen him in a Western, he can be a real S uh, of a gun. You know, that guy, really good, heavy. He played a lot of villains, yeah. Yeah, so I'm sitting going, is this really Dr. McCoy or is this like Toby Jack Saunders? You know, who is this guy? (laughs) Right. Anyhow, so I stood back and watched and I saw how he interacted with, with other fans. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he is just salt of the earth. So I finally screwed up my courage to ask him for an autograph and step forward and ask him for his autograph. And he was so wonderful and so unactorly. I mean, you could tell he really respected you and was really appreciative that you were there. And so I drove home from that event knowing that I had a creative writing assignment due that coming Monday. And I thought, well, I'll write about meeting DeForest Kelly. So I wrote an essay called The Real McCoy. How clever was that? <laughs> and I gave it to my teacher, and he said, this is just really, really good. Why don't you send a copy to Mr. Kelly? And I went, I don't write to TV stars, for gosh sake, you know? <laughs> right. And he said, well, if you impress somebody as much as he impressed you, wouldn't you want to know? And I went, well, yeah, but he's an actor. He probably hears it 10 times a day. <laughs> sure. And he basically just pulled rank on me and said, send it. And teachers have a lot of clout, you know. They can write you up for insubordination and all kinds of <laughs> right, stuff. Right, right. So I, I sent the, I sent it, and I thought, okay, well, there you go. His secretary will see it. She'll throw it away. I mean, it's no big deal. Just send it. <laughs> sure. 
Well, as luck would have it, Carol and his wife was his secretary, and she read it, and she went, Dee, you've got to look at this. <laughs> and they liked it so much that they sent it to a TV star parade, which is a New York publication back then. Sure. And they liked it so much that they wanted to post it as a special holiday article. So <laughs> Dee wrote to let me know this. Would that be all right? And I'm like, you had to peel me off the ceiling. I was so <laughs> excited. I could not believe it. I wanted to be a writer, but, you know, I didn't think I had that kind of ability. Sure. So when he sent it in and they published it word for word, he launched my writing career. What can I say? Yeah, sure. And, 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 and he let me know that I really was a good writer. And then he continued to encourage me after that. That's great. That's so funny that his wife was his secretary. But I think things were a little different, you know, back then. I I was watching the uh, For Love of Spock documentary recently. Yes. And it talks about how once the fan mail came rolling in uh, for for Leonard, you know, he had his whole family, uh, his kids and everybody opening mail and stuff like that on weekends. Absolutely. Carolyn and Dee were a partnership. They don't have it. Didn't have any kids. So, I mean, they were they were a partner partnership and they did all of that. Yeah. And you I talked in the book, too, about and you, just now you talked about meeting celebrities and you're never sure how they're going to be. And uh -huh. I found that that's a problem for me as well. Like I've been to conventions and I've seen famous people, even people that I'm a, a big fan of. And I'm always afraid to kind of break that membrane. And I'm not like really a shy person, but there's just something about maybe the magic or just seeing them as a person on TV. And I don't really want to disturb that. And I think it's it's really neat that you had the courage to just go, well, look, he's he's nice to other people. I'm, I'm going to go talk to this guy. And, you know, I mean, I didn't expect I was going to, like, inflict myself on him for a long time. I was just going to very quickly, you know, right, come and point. go and I'd be gone. So sure. it's not like, huge. <laughs> right, right. But then he was so, you know, interactive and appreciative and friendly just in that brief exchange that, you know, I mean, I did leave right away. I mean, you know, I did right. go away. But yeah. it was like. My gosh, I have never met anybody as absolutely quintessentially, what do you want to say, Southern gentleman? I don't sure. know what it is, but sure. he just had this almost a Dalai Lama effect on me where he was like <laughs> almost a spiritual master without being religious. Sure. That you just felt like you were immediately a beloved, that he trusted you, that he could see everything about you, and yet you were completely accepted. Right. So... It was just, you know, unless you met him, did you ever meet him? I never did. No, I never got a chance to. Those who met him know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh -huh. He made you, although I was a nervous wreck, he immediately, as soon as he got to know you to any degree at all, he quickly kicked that pedestal out from under himself and let you know he was just a regular guy that put it on his pants one leg at a time and sure. he didn't want you to hold him to that high standard. He probably... D, as humble as he was, he probably didn't feel like, I'm not going to live up to anybody's high Oh, stand. sure. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and so he needed you to know, I'm just a real person. You know, please don't, you know. Um, which, of course, and Carolyn was way down to earth. So they just helped you relax in their presence until all of a sudden you felt like, you know, very comfortable, very familiar. Yeah. Quickly. Yeah. And it's ironic that being that kind of person that that was never really brought out on screen for him. He was always playing these kind of meanies or playing uh, somebody who was kind of grumpy, like Dr. McCoy, very right. different from his, right. his Even persona. McCoy was more grumpier than he. Yeah. D was a really laid back, gentlemanly, soft spoken. Sometimes you had to lean forward to hear him. <laughs> um, and when he went to do the Westerns, 
at first, like Steve McQueen, he went into Steve McQueen's office and he said, I'd like to do the heavy. And he goes, I'm sorry, you just you aren't the right type. He was right. such a gentleman. And Dee just grabbed him by the shirt and turned into a, you know, a rowdy cowboy and said, well, I think I can convince you I am. And Steve McQueen was like, whoa, all right. <laughs> you know, there was a lady who knew Dee since he was about 18 years old. And he she confessed to him later on after he'd done many, many Westerns that she had never seen any of his Westerns. And he said, why not? She said, because, Dee, I could just never believe you as a bad guy. <laughs> Don't ever tell an actor you wouldn't believe him. He immediately, right. <laughs> immediately turned into one of those son of a guns he played in a Western and grabbed her, and it scared her so bad she started to cry. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And he started to cry because he didn't want to <laughs> scare her. He said, honey, I wasn't trying to scare you. I was just trying to show you I could do it. <laughs> I mean, he could really. He was such a soft-spoken gentleman, sweetheart, somebody you knew you would never in a million years have to worry about. And yet he could turn around and do something like that. Sure. Which he patterned after a Georgia sheriff that he knew. And oh. just blow you away. After meeting him then in Washington, and that was when? That was in the late 60s? That was, yeah, that was uh, May 4th, 1968. Okay, okay. And then you, you met him uh, again later, much later, uh, at a convention uh, in the 80s. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Where was that convention he, at? That convention was in Denver. Okay. And um, the reason I didn't, write them for a long time after that was that after he got it, the article published, I was going to write him again and again. I mean, I had a hundred pen pals. Okay. I was going to write him again. And my mother basically said, Chris, he's, the man has been very kind to you. Do not drive him crazy. Let's not push it. Letter. Sure. Let's push it. And I totally got it. And I just stopped. And then for the 20th anniversary of Star Trek, like what, 16, 18 years later. Right. I realized, you know, I owe this man a long overdue thank you for launching my writing career because I did go on to write more stuff. Mm -hmm. And he was going to be in a, he was going to be it's in Spokane at a convention, for okay. a 20th anniversary convention. So I thought I need to go over there and thank him for launching my writing career. That's when we reconnected. Uh -huh. um, and he said, don't lose. He introduced me to Carol again and she said, don't lose touch. And they gave me their, their, um, address and they said now send me the articles that you had published and we always wondered what happened to the little girl who wrote so well and from that point it was almost like they became a second set of parents they encouraged me to move down to california yeah and into the entertainment d put a w good word in for me at paramount and i took the test down there and right. from the moment i moved down to california it was like they were my second set of parents the con in spokane is this the con where uh, you were there with, with your ne uh, nephew Yes, the one in Spokane is when I was there with my my uh, very young nephew at that time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I was reading about that in the book, and it was just fascinating. I mean, it was it's amazing that you've had this connection um, with Dee, but also the other people that you've run into. You were talking about volunteering at the con, and you're there with your nephew, and he's at a table with De David Gerald. The guy right, and, uh, and, Rod, and Rod Jr., Gene Rodman yeah, Jr. He's yeah. hitting it off with Rod Jr., yeah, it was just yeah, amazing. Yeah, they're both the same age, and they, they got behind the same table. Yeah. Um, there's a story in your book uh, about what you talk about. You had d uh, dinner with him in Denver yes. um, with him and Carolyn and some other people, uh, which yes. 
uh, you can tell the story. Uh, it, it would really freak me out. Um, like oh. I said before, like I don't know what it is. Sometimes I have trouble talking to people like this. I had actually had the opportunity to have dinner with Stan Lee once, not um, by myself, but with a group right. of people. And right. this friend of mine and I eventually just kind of backed out because we're like, I don't know what we'd even say. I don't know what, we, what we'd do. <laughs> I exactly know. Yeah. I was a complete and total wreck at that thing because <laughs> I thought, you know, you just want to make a good impression and you're just all tied up in knots like you would never be with anybody else. Yeah. And you feel like you're Garfield's little buddy, Odie, and you know, and you and you don't know whether to approach him like that. <laughs> I'm hanging out or like <laughs> right. having an audience with the Pope. Something right in the middle is about right, but you don't know how to do that thing. Yeah, right, right. And I was a total nervous wreck. So um, that little bit in, in the book there about me meeting him, that is absolutely word for word what happened and how nerve-wracked I was in my body. And it was so funny in retrospect. I actually did it as a stand-up comedy routine in Denver and Oakland to show people how nervous I was meeting them the first time. <laughs> Dean Carolyn said, I had no idea you were that nervous. I said, I deserve an Oscar then. You hit it well, right. <laughs> I was an absolute – I read that to my mom and dad, and they said, Chris, you can't tell anybody that. They're gonna, People are going to think you're crazy. And I went, no, no, no fan who has ever met their favorite actor – will think I'm crazy. They will know oh, that's yeah. exactly what it's like. They'll understand it for sure. Yeah. In your, in your book, you talk about being reborn in a way after meeting DeForest and finding yeah. a new purpose as a writer. How did that begin? How did he help, help inspire that change? Just by letting me know, by getting that article published and, and saying, send us your articles and just, you know, it was, it was validation that this kid who had been living in the sticks right. could write. Because my mom and dad, although they thought I was a good writer, and the teachers told me I was a good writer and bought me writers, the teachers bought me writer's magazines to help me get better. <laughs> my mom and dad were scared to death for me as a writer. Back then, there really were no outlets. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't mm -hmm. cable TV. You had right. three TV stations. You had maybe, if you were lucky, 30 publications in the country. Right, right. And they thought I would starve to death if I tried to be a writer. So they were always very scared that I wanted to do that. They didn't know the Internet was coming or cable was coming and that, that the information age was coming. Right. <laughs> but I couldn't not write. I mean, it was like they were scared to death and they were always trying to keep me busy doing other things. But it was like, this is what I was born to do. I was born to write. So and Dean Carolyn, you know, right there at age 17 said, you're a writer, look, you're published. They got me published. My teacher said I was a great writer. Another writer who was a writer um, said, my God, you're a great writer. And so I started to get that kind of encouragement. And at, that's at the age I started to, okay, now you need to believe it. Don't yeah. be so frightened by your parents' fear for you. You need to work this. This is your gift. I think that you had mentioned in the book that you were um, working on or were sort of adjacent to Baywatch when it was first being produced at NBC. The first show I got on was Baywatch because right. I went to Paramount past their test light crazies. They said, come on down, move on down. I'm sure you can get on any one of the 11 pilots that we have here happening yeah. this year. <laughs> right, I moved right. down there. None of those pilots was picked up, not a one. And they went, I'm so sorry. Well, I had now moved down with my serval cat, an African wildcat. Right. 
<laughs> and here I am, and I have no job. So I immediately registered with the temp agencies that, that serviced the entertainment industry. Uh-huh. And I had uh, Sue Keenan was D's fan club president, and she had a friend named Jackie, which was also my friend. Um, and Jackie was about to leave Baywatch because she knew the first season, after the first season, it would be canceled. And so she said, well, I need to go to another place. You know, I need to, I need to move on. So she bequeathed me her job at Baywatch, the, the final three months at Baywatch. And she moved on to, I think, 21 Jump Street or something like that. And she said, uh, do a good job here and you'll do great. And I did a good job there and I got great reviews. And so I walked across the street after Baywatch was canceled to Culver Studios and I applied there and I started floating, a floating secretary. Just to whatever department needed a secretary, I floated there for yeah. for a while. And that could be tough. And I ended up at Warner Brothers eventually. You mentioned uh, Deacon, your serval cat, and he factors yeah. large earlier in your story. And I thought it was interesting you moving to L.A. and having to find a place where you can keep this cat, where somebody's going to allow him to be. And also just your story of trying to find a place that you could board him until you could find that place. And I thought it was fascinating that you ended up <laughs> taking him to uh, to Tippy Hedren, essentially. I did, uh, yes. I used to work in 80, from 81 to 85, I worked at the Animal Protection Institute, and I was in touch with a lot of the animal advocates in that, during that era. Mm-hmm. So when I knew I was going to move back to California, I contacted Peter Rasmussen with the Elsa Wild Animal Appeal, and I said, do you know anybody who can let me board Deacon somewhere until I find a landlord who would be willing to let me rent with a, with a cat, with a wild cat in the backyard? Right. He said, yeah, I know somebody. Let me call and I'll call you back if it's a good fit. So pretty soon I'm up. I'm my mom opens the door and she says, Chris, you have a call. And I said, who is it? And she says, it's a lady. I was up on top of Deacon's uh, pen <laughs> doing something on the roof. And I said, "Will you find out who it is. I'm on the top of Deacon's pen. And uh, he go, she goes, it's Tippy Hedren. <laughs> I just I jumped off, <laughs> jumped off that, you know, six foot high thing and went running in. She says, Oh, Chris, we would be delighted to take, take little Deacon in, you know? And she says, it probably will take you a while to find a good, uh, to find a landlord who will allow you to have him. Right. So don't worry about it. He can stay here as long as he needs to stay. You can come up and stay with him on the weekends. You can stay here. Don't worry about it. You know, so he, he'll, he'll know he isn't abandoned. So that's what happened. I ended up taking him to Tippy Hedren's Shambhala Preserve, which is still in a, it's still in existence, and they need money. So if you love critters, Shambhala.org is a good place to go look and find out about that place. Shambhala.org. Yeah, it's amazing yes. to read in the book how much the Kellys supported you in, in finding a job in Hollywood, even helping you find a place to live. There's a, sto- there's a story in your book about how you would fi- finally find a place that fit your price range, and then I think your roommates backed out on you. Yes. So you couldn't, couldn't make your half. Yes, I couldn't make my half, and Carolyn calls, and I – and I, I was in tears because, I mean, this this was falling through. I had found the perfect place. I had the the fish and game and the all of the animal control people had all said, said yes, this is a fine place. You can have this place. Sure. And I called them in tears. I, I mean, trying not to cry. And I said, I can't. The person backed out. And Carolyn says, well, suppose a little fairy helps you. I said, Carol, <laughs> I cannot do that. No, please. She goes, look. Let us just give you the move-in fees, and you can find – I said, I can't move into this place. I can't afford it by myself. She says, you'll find a roommate. 
Now, just go get that. I mean, they'd been worried about deacon up on the hill for 15 months, too. It was like, get the cat home with you. Right. They met him by now. They'd met him, and they saw the the uh, relationship he and I had. Sure. So, um, so she says, Chris, we're going to do this thing. T- give me your landlord's address. I'm going to have D get in the car right now and take a check to him. <laughs> so I went, okay. And I called the lady, and I said, Somebody's going to be by to give you the security deposit in the first month's check. She goes, okay, that's super. And I said, just don't pass out when it gets there. And she goes, what do you mean? And I said, <laughs> watch Star Trek. And she goes, yeah. And I said, well, it's DeForest Kelly. And she says, which one was he? And I said, Dr. McCoy. And she must have thought, you know, Cranky McCoy. Right, right. <laughs> she goes, oh, my God. You know, sure enough, D shows up at her house. She calls me later and she says, Chris, he is the sweetest man I have ever met, and he's your biggest fan. He says you're going to be famous, and I just off he goes. Anyhow, they were were literally, I'm not kidding you, Carolyn had a bad hip, and she wasn't able to walk around much at that time. Dee was literally going house to house, knocking on doors, using his influence to try to get somebody who would rent to me. Right. (laughs) Because, you know, strangers with wild cats really aren't going to get really far. But sure. Kelly, oh, fun, another funny story was Carolyn calls me up. She says, D found you a place. I said, okay. She says, it's really close to where we are. And D saw this guy working on, working on it. It's got a big fence so Deacon can't get out. And D walked up and he, I guess the guy recognized D right away. And D said, so you're renting this place. And he goes, yeah. And he says, uh, well, I have a friend who has a cat, and she needs to find a place to rent. And he goes, oh, that's fine. A cat is a problem. You know, fine. And he goes, he says, it's a rather big cat. <laughs> and he says, Mr. Kelly, as long as it's no bigger than a lion, I don't care. And he goes, oh, no, it's no bigger than a lion. <laughs> <laughs> it was really a knee-high. It was a knee-high cat. So right. um, so then he says, so this is the address. Why don't you go look? And I said, how much is it? She said, it's 1345 a month. And I went, oh, Carolyn, I can't afford wow. that. Yeah. So she's like, okay, what can you afford? I said, six or $700 in the valley. That's like really bad. That's right. really cheap. They just went out and started looking for $607, places for me. And they said, Chris, you're not going to stay at these places. You have to get, you know, find a roommate, get a better place. Right. And right. It, they were like my California parents. Right. Yeah. It was just incredible. I kept shaking my head and going, is this real? <laughs> How can this be happening? Yeah. You know? Yeah, he was an extremely generous man. I, I was touched as well by a story that you related in the book about him going home to, to Conyers in Georgia and trying to find a woman whose yes. son he'd been friends with as a kid. He was doing interviews you know, for TV and radio in the area, and at the end of the inter- interview, he would ask people to call the station if they knew this family exactly. so he could get in touch with them. It was amazing. Exactly. It was a black family, and he was he was chums with the, with the uh, kid. They were the same age, uh-huh. and they lived on this street. He said it was the most appropriate name street in the world, Needmore Street. Right. And they just, you know, they lived in terrible poverty. Not that the Kellys lived that much better because his dad was a preacher and they didn't make a whole lot of money either. Sure. But certainly they were better off. Yeah. And um, so when he got into some money, it was like 
I need to find her and help her. And he went and went to the house. And there was a lady who answered the door who said, you know, who are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for Emma Banks. And she said, oh, she doesn't live here anymore. I saw her four or five years ago. She was in a rolling chair, a wheelchair. She was in a rolling chair. And he said, and he thought, well, thank you. And he said, well, she's still alive. And so then every time he would do an interview while he was over there, he would say, if anybody knows where Emma Banks is, please call this studio. I want to get in touch with her. He said he wanted to help her. I mean, he didn't say that on the radio, but he, he, he had in mind to help her. Right. And it just never came to be. He, he never did find her. But that's well, the kind of guy he was when he was 18 years old and he first moved to Long Beach from Georgia. There was a, a young gal probably about the same age, and he found out he and his gang of uh, fellow <laughs> wannabe actors sure. found out that this gal was going to be um, – found out that she had cancer back then in that era, they didn't know if cancer was catchy or not. Okay. And, but he had grown up in a, in a, you know, his father was a preacher and they always went out and, you know, did what they needed to do for parishioners. And he said, you know what? She only has a few months to live. We're going to give her the best three or four months she's ever had until she dies. (laughs) You know, and they went and, hung with her and did stuff with her. And even though half of the gang was frightened, we might catch it. You know, she goes, (laughs) he goes, no, 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 this is what we're going to do. And he went out and just spent time with her and gave her, you know, the best life she could have. He was lucky in love. Clearly he was married for 54 years, which is amazing, but his on-screen alter ego, not so much. It seems like Dr. McCoy could never really find himself a a girlfriend. Well, according to Canon, Dr. McCoy was married and that's why he went in and divorced. And that's why he entered Starfleet to kind of get away from it. And and supposedly had a daughter named Joanna as well. Yeah. In fact, the way to Eden was originally written that the girl, that the hippie, well, they weren't hippies when it was first written, that right. the girl was supposed to be McCoy's daughter and that McCoy and that Kirk got, had an eye for her and wanted to hit on her. And he said, oh, no, oh, no, I know enough of, too much about you. You are not hitting on my daughter. You know? <laughs> I mean, there was this whole thing written. I, I don't know if D.C. Fontana wrote that one or not. I don't remember who wrote it. But he said, oh, and D.C. Fontana came to him and he said, we want to give McCoy a child. We want to give McCoy a son. And he says, if you give me a child, I want a daughter. I don't want a son. Okay. Strange, you know. Interesting. He had a brother. He had no sisters. He felt really close to his mother. But he said, no, no, if I if McCoy has a child, I want it to be a daughter. Yeah. I just yeah. I wonder at that because it's clear that he's, you know, he's a good looking guy. He's a nice guy. I, they just didn't see him as a character that would be getting into relationships most of the time, it seems. I, I don't know if that's an artifact of the way that a 60s adventure show is structured, just because you've got your hero like Kirk and he's got to have all the girls. But yeah. I don't think it's any lack of appeal on uh, on Kelly's part. We think of it as the Kirk, Spock, McCoy show now Yeah. in retrospect. But McCoy, first of all, McCoy wasn't even a co-equal star the first season of Star Trek. That's right. right. He was a featured player and he he became so popular, the character became so popular with the fans that um, I believe the other two actors pulled rank and said, look, D deserves equal billing in the second year. Right. 
And so that's because the fans demanded more of that, just in the same way Richie and Fonzie. At first it was a Richie show. Fonzie got so popular that Fonzie, that it became an ensemble when it was really supposed to be like a one-character-driven show. This right. is supposed to be a Kirk Spock show, kind of. But right. McCoy was so popular with the fans that in the second season he became co-equal. Right. And a lot of that had to do with, because it was a, essentially a Kirk Spock show, the romantic interests almost always went to Kirk or Spock. You know, people trying to get Spock to overcome that. Right. He doesn't even have emotions. Right. And, yeah. You know, so that's, I think why the two main characters got more of the romantic, um, shots than, than McCoy did. Sure. But it's even in the first episode, he, he's got like an ex-girlfriend, like he, right, he, right. Nancy is, is the one that got away, but <laughs> he, he can't have that relationship. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Trek episode? Um, I have several. Oh, okay. Well, um, I did a stand-up comedy routine about McCoy never getting the girls, and when he does, <laughs> he gets, he gets, you know, he gets a Lance in the gizzard. <laughs> he gets... Right. You know, he walks into a bar and he says, anybody been looking for me? And the waitress says, I have, but, but what's the use? Two minutes later, he's on his, you know, his back in his detention. You know, right. uh, when he gets the girl, he's got xenopolis athemia and he's going to die in a year. And all right. she wants to do is talk about the book instead of the honeymoon. You know, I mean, right. I just did this funny thing about that. Among my favorite episodes are the empath because it showed the willingness of, you know, the empath gem was supposed to be learning compassion and altruism and all of this stuff and it showed the crew's willingness to die for each other and McCoy's willingness unwillingness to die to allow her to die for him yeah he's really great in that one because yeah it, it, it having the 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 trinity in there they all really um fulfill their roles exactly as they should and and he is so um because he's the passion of that sort of group uh-huh he's, and he's even acting in a sort of underhanded way, but he's like, look, I understand the stakes here, and I'm not going to let you guys right. make this decision. I'm going to do this thing. I'm right. going to sur- sacrifice right. myself. Right. Exactly. Um, I also like For the World is Hollow, and I Have Touched the Sky, where he yeah. has the relationship with Natira. Yeah, he gets married. Yes. I like the one City on the Edge of Forever. Oh, yeah. Which actually, in the longer version of it, McCoy also fell for Edith, Edith Keeler. There were, right, yeah. there were more scenes in there that showed that he was falling for her, which makes the ending even more poignant if right. you knew the extended story of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this woman's so beautiful, we just can't let her get hit by a bus. Right. And he's trying to save her, and no, you can't. And he's like, what is the matter? You just stopped me from saving her. Right. You know? Um, I, bread and circuses. I, I love... <laughs> McCoy always, he didn't hardly usually have a whole lot of lines, but every line he had was like, you couldn't wait. The minute he would show up in a scene, it was like, something's going to happen here and it's going to be great. It's either going to be very, very poignant and dramatic, or it's going to be very, very funny. You know, and the the thing where, you know, (laughs) Spock says in the, in the battle, in the arena, Spock says, do you need help? He said, what made you? What gives you that idea? You know, he's practically getting mauled. And he, right. says, and, uh, he says, and then the the um, gladiator says, at least defend yourself. And he says, I am defending myself. <laughs> right. And the episode where they send Spock out and he and Spock says, Captain, don't don't 
don't risk losing the ship just for me. Don't look. And McCoy says, shut up, Spock. We're rescuing you. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Captain. <laughs> you know, just he had those moments where you just knew as soon as he came on and engaged, there was going to be either sparks flying with Spock or uh, Leonard called him the rock upon which much of Star Trek stands. He's like mm. Gary Cooper. He stands there beside you and he says the lines. Right. And don't turn your back on him because he really knows what he's doing. He can steal a Celestine without even trying. Right, now, right. He's not, he was a great ensemble actor. He wasn't trying to steal the scene. He was trying to make that scene the best it could be with yeah. the contribution that he had to made, make. And he just always did. Yeah, and he, he was really he was magnetic as an yeah. actor as well. Yeah. Um, let's can we talk about the movies really fast? Did you, you have a you favorite part or favorite scene in some of the movies? I like the movies because he's we get to see more sides of him as as a character, um, and he's a movie star. You know, no offense to the rest of the cast, but Definitely. they give him more to do in these movies, and he really brings it in those films. The only I totally agree. The only Star Trek actor with a motion picture star on the Walk of Fame is DeForest Kelly. Mm-hmm. The other ones had got it for TV. It's for yeah. his motion pictures, not for his TV contributions. I love the humor in the Voyage Home. Absolutely yeah. love it. In in five, where he, he has to euthanize his father. Although everybody says that's probably their least favorite movie, I thought he was absolutely magnetic in that, where he yes. has to let his father. You know, his father. And the interesting thing about that, the way that was written, the line was. His father was supposed to say, kill me. And he said, absolutely not. I will not say that line. Doctors do not kill. Yeah. Um, he said, I am not saying that. And he said, what do you suggest? You know, he said, release me. Uh-huh. You know, turn off the machines, release me. Because right. he's in this terrible, terrible pain. And he says, you know, and he says, I'm, I, I, I'm a doctor. I can't do that. But I'm his son. How can I not do that? He's begging me, you yeah. know, um, that what after D did that scene, he had to like seclude himself for a while. Yeah, I can imagine. It was really, really, really rough on him to do that scene. Yeah. And he put a lot of himself into his his roles. I mean, his fictional father's name was David. Yes. As well as his own yes. father. Yes. And I think was at one point said to be a minister as well. Yes. And he and that d- scene was particularly rough on D because he knew that maybe maybe half of his fans would absolutely blow a head gasket at the thought that he would euthanize his father. Yeah. He thought, I do not want to disappoint fans. I do not want to cause any kind of, but it didn't happen. If I can ask, uh, why do you think that he took to you the way he did? This is total speculation. Sure. I think because I was so willing to disappear for that 18 years, it was like they were looking for me instead of I was looking for them. We were actually building restaurants all over the country. I really didn't have an address where I could really stay in touch with them anyway after mom said, don't do it. But I probably right. could have done it more often than I had instead of just plain disappearing. And so I thought immediately that, that well, she's definitely not a stalker. <laughs> she disappeared for 16 sure. years. Right. Know? What happened so, to that girl? Yeah. So I think they thought they knew, A, I was safe. I'm not a stalker. I'm not after D. I'm not, you know, <laughs> all of those things you can worry about when you are. They had, they, most of their 
friends were friends who knew him when he was 18 and 19 before he became a star. They knew they were safe. Okay. And so there weren't a whole lot of people in the Kelly life after he became an actor that they didn't have to, I think, screen pretty carefully. I just think they became, like I said to you earlier, they were so familiar. They were like family-like to you. And I guess I was able to relax into that. And later on, they said, I don't, I didn't, we, we totally forgot you even came to us as a fan. Sure. Um, no, I wasn't. You know, people say, what did you think about so-and-so of this on Star Trek? I said, we really didn't discuss Star Trek. I let them discuss whatever they wanted to. A lot of times it was the Westerns because he really loved his Westerns. He mentioned a few things about Star Trek, but we really didn't talk about his career all that much. We were talking about their pets. I mean, we're all animal lovers. Right. We were talking about, you know, uh, you know, the stuff they were getting from Paramount by the bucket loads and box loads. I was, come get this stuff. Will you please come get this stuff, you know? <laughs> um, sure. So um, that's why I wrote the book. D- when uh, Terry Rio wrote his biography from Sawdust to Stardust, D wanted me to write his biography too. And I'm an okay. anecdotal writer. I am not a historian. <laughs> I'm not an interviewer. Right. So I gave that to Terry because I knew she was and that Bill Moyer was a big fan of hers. I gave that to her. She went and interviewed all of those people that were still alive that knew him from the time he was little. And then she came to me and she said, well, you were with him the last three months of his life. I need to interview you. And I said, okay. And she said, how did you go from being a fan on the outermost reaches of fandom to being at his bedside when he passed away? And I looked at her and I went, Terry, that's something Dee would have had to answer. I don't know what was inside his mind. And she goes, right. she goes, Chris, you know the answer. You just have to connect the dots. So I went, because I'm a writer and I, I'm a journalist. I've had journals my whole life. I went back into my journals and re-took the steps, took the steps, took the steps that helped me understand how that happened because it wasn't a plan. I didn't say I am going to go from this to this. It wasn't a plan. (laughs) It just happened. And every time the bond got closer and closer, I just kept marveling that that was happening because (laughs) I'm pretty shy. I'm pretty um, introspective. I'm not terribly gregarious or I have a few very close friends. I'm not like a party girl or anything. Right. So they had to (laughs) draw me in because I am not the kind of person that goes running off to you. Right. And maybe that's what it was because it was like, she certainly isn't (laughs) like I said, she isn't stalking us. It's like we have to practically (laughs) throw a rope around her and say, you're coming to Hollywood. You're right. <laughs> going to the convention. I can't afford it. That's fine. We're taking you. You know, that kind of stuff. So, and when sure. they needed help, I was able to to pay them back for all of the um, the trust they had placed in me. And the other thing is, if he hadn't invited me in to, in quotes, die with him, I'm not sure I ever would have made the connection that they really were all that fond of me. I always thought, they're being so kind to this fan of theirs that sure sure and then when he invited me into that intimate space where he was dying i thought my god this guy really trusts me 
And I'd just gone through it with my mom who had brain cancer and he knew I could do it. He knew I was strong enough to do it. Mm. So, and he didn't tell me he was sick because mom was sick essentially at the same time. And he didn't want me to feel torn because she's up in Washington and he's down in California. He wouldn't, he didn't want me feeling at all torn. So he waited till she passed away. And it was like three months later when he finally just needed help that he called me in. But he knew it. he just didn't want me to know until I had to know. And then I came in. Up Close and Personal is a sort of rework of an original book called Harvest of Memories. Is that correct? Yes. Um, the original, because it was going to be the first book out about him after he had passed away, I took an awful lot of funny stuff out. Because I realized people were going to be getting into this book. Yeah, we wanted it to be three quarters funny, but the last part I wanted to show the time in the hospital, mostly because if you aren't with somebody, fans are thinking, oh my God, I hope he didn't suffer. Please right, right. don't let him suffer. Please, I just want to know. So, an awful lot of that first edition was maybe maybe up to a third of the first edition was the final months of his life because I wanted people to know he went through it with great dignity and that he was in relative comfort. He was sad. He was leaving Carolyn, but he was having a, we were having good times. We were laughing in the hospital. I mean, I just wanted them to be able to go through that sad time with me and realize that boy, if you're going to go, this is the way to go kind of thing. (laughs) Um, I wanted fans at the end of that book, yeah, they're going to be sad, yeah, they're going to cry, but they're going to know he got really, really good care, and that it probably couldn't have gone any better than it went. Sure. Okay, so now now it's the 50th anniversary, and I'm thinking, people know the story, people know what happened, so I want to take all that, most of that, out, and I want to add in all the stories we took out, because we took a bunch of the stories out because first of all, the book would have been 800 and some pages long if it all gotten in. <laughs> right. And most of what we took out of the early, the first edition was the funny stuff. I mean, much of the funny stuff. It was still, most of it was still funny, but there were like 60 pages of drop dead, falling down funny stuff that we pulled on him and he pulled on us that we <laughs> took out because there just wasn't room. Sure. So this 50th anniversary edition, I took, I truncated the the dying days, and I added back in all of those anecdotes of other convention appearances. Of and then I also added something like sixty pages, thirty pages, two sides of images, um, because the the only the only gripe I got about the first book was she's delusional. She made all of this up. There was no way that could have all happened. So then I'm going, all righty then, I'm going to now document this. So most of the book are the letters I got from them, the, you know, tickets to the conventions. I mean, all I was documenting, guys, I did not make this up. This really did happen. Right. So that took away that bad review. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The new version is 85 to 90% funny. People still tell me they cry at the end, and I think they probably should because I cried when it happened, and I cried when I wrote about it. So (laughs) if you're there and if you're with me in that book, you're going to cry too. And I especially had a hard time. I did an audiobook version of it too this time, audiobook. So I had to read the thing, and when I was reading it, it was a whole lot different than writing it. 
because I relived it. I really did relive it as I was verbally voicing it. And and when we got to the end there, I'm like, Chris, are you going to be able to read this? I mean, (laughs) you know, I almost relived it again. Well, I can uh, confirm that the funny is definitely back in there. It is definitely very funny. (laughs) And it's definitely very touching, too. We had a really good time, but he was just such a decent, sassy, caring person. That it, it, although you're laughing, it's still, it's still poignant even all the way through it. Yeah. yeah. You really get to feel, uh, my, my joy is that the people who have read the book said, Chris, I always wanted to meet him. And now I feel like I met him. That's exactly what I wanted. Yeah. Cause and had, that's how I feel too. I had so many people say to me before I wrote the book, he seemed to be a nice man. And I went, I do not want people to only think he seemed to be a nice man. <laughs> I wanted them to know he was salt of the earth. He was the best. Um, Before mom and dad met him, they thought I was way over the edge about him. They thought I was just starstruck as heck, you know. Right. And I said, Mom, I would love this guy if he was our lawn care attendant. It has nothing to do with what he does for a living. When they finally met him, as you saw in the book, when they finally met him, it was like, oh, Chris. You are so right. I mean, we were really worried about you, but we get it now. Yeah. You are so lucky. Yeah. And yeah, it, it anyone who ever met D will definitely know what I'm talking about. He he was just amazing. At his memorial service at Paramount, I said, in my opinion, DeForest Kelly is the kind of man God had in mind when he created Adam. If this sad old world was more heavily populated with DeForest Kelly types, it would be the paradise we all wish it was. That's how I felt about it. I mean, I've met lots of wonderful, wonderful people. And a lot of these fans seem to be like channeling him these days, too. I mean, the the DeForest Kelly fans I met, I said, you know, that's the best thing. He said his legacy, his biggest legacy was... The many doctors and surgeon doctors and nurses yeah. and all of these people. He said there are many McCoys everywhere in every hospital. And he's, yeah. he thought that was his greatest legacy. And I've met those people. And yeah, that's that's him. He said somebody asked him, I think it was Dan Madsen, how would you like to be remembered? And he said, Well, you know, sometimes I wonder if they will remember. There's nothing deader than a dead actor. <laughs> I wish he was here to see. I really do. Because because he's certainly, he's not really dead as long as you remember him. And and the hospitals are full of people who who are carrying his legacy. He could only have been one doctor, Kelly. You know, he wanted to be a doctor. And he also wanted to be a cowboy. And he ended up being both. Right. um, Yeah, he did. Yeah. (laughs) But he could only have been one doctor, Kelly. But by being Dr. McCoy, he just, he just like, like there are as many Dr. McCoys as there are tribbles, you know, all over the world. So I, that's absolutely true. I wish he, I wish he could see it. And I wish he could see Carl Urban. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I was so scared, so scared to see that first show. Cause I thought, you know, you can't catch lightning in a bottle twice. And I was going to be interviewed three days later. And I thought, I, I, it will kill me if I have to say, sorry, you know, close but no cigar. Right. And I was sure. so delighted, so delighted that I loved it so much so that I could say, oh, my gosh, he did it. He yeah, did it. Yeah, he honored he, Dee's 
character without making it a parody. He made it yeah. own. Yeah. But he is, I wish Dee was here to see that in the way that Leonard was here to see Spock, you know? Right. Because I think it would have tickled him pink. Well, thanks so much for joining me to talk about the life of DeForest Kelly. If people want to read more, they can check out your book, DeForest Kelly, Up Close and Personal. Also, listeners should check out his biography, From Sawdust to Stardust by Terry Rue. Chris, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me at yellowballoonpublications.com. There's a story about D and a yellow balloon, which is why my company is called that. Yellowballoonpublications.com. You can read that story there. You can also see other interviews. You can take a look at my books there. If you want to just reach out to me, my email address is chris, K-R-I-S, at wordwhisper.net. Well, thanks again for joining me today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That's our interview. I would be hard-pressed if you put a phaser to my head. I don't know if I could pick between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as my favorite. I think that they really... They really support each other um, in their own personal greatness. They make each other fantastic. But I do have to say that I've always loved McCoy as a character and Kelly as an actor, to be honest. I think that he definitely deserves more credit for making Star Trek what it is. You could find Christine Smith at yellowballoonpublications.com, all one word together, for more information about her and what she's up to. You can also find her on hireme, H-I-R-E-M-E, dot wordwhisperer.net. To get more information from her and what she is up to, I want to thank her for being on the show. We had a great time, and we'll definitely have her back soon. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. I want to let all the listeners know that we will be back next week with a new episode. This time, we'll be looking at an episode of Deep Space Nine that has eerie parallels to what's going on in our country today. We're looking at Past Tense, Parts 1 and 2, next time on Enterprising Individuals. So join us for that. Until next time, we're signing off, telling you to live long and prosper. <laughs>